Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Hello world, welcome to another Deep Dive with me, Eyal Shai. I'm joined today by Dave Rauch. Hi Dave. Hi, how's it going? It's going well. It's a new year. Um, what is going to be the topic for discussion today? I was thinking we would talk about social technologies, kind of get into what that concept means and what we might be able to do with it in the context of everything going on around the world. Yeah, that's, that's great. It's certainly novel um, to me, and I'd like to hear more about it. And of course, as is the custom, I'd like to hear how you stumbled onto the concept and where does it meet you in your personal life with things you're kind of thinking and dealing with? I uh, stumbled across the concept of in the process of reading a novel called The Glass Palace, I think by Amitav Ghosh. And it made a reference to white elephants. And I think we've all heard of white elephants as a uh, custom where this particular kind of elephant is uh, protected and fed by a village, despite the fact that it has no real utility. And in this novel, it mentions white elephants, comparing them to something that the household had been doing for no real reason. And the character realizes that that had prepared them for an eventual benefit to that practice that they could not have foreseen. That got me thinking, what else is there that we do that we don't see the immediate practical benefit, but prepares our actions or prepares our thoughts for something that will eventually pay off? And from that perspective, the custom of the care and feeding of white elephants might be practical after all, because it creates a conceptual space where not everything has to have a payoff, not everything has to have a rational benefit. And I was thinking about that, and I'd come up with a cultural infrastructure as a handle to put on it. And then I read an article by Sam Oberja on social technologies and realized that was actually a more handy term for that exact thing realized that it has to do with lowering coordination costs for activities where multiple people are working toward a unified goal. And it need not necessarily be a shared goal. It need not necessarily even be a good goal, but it does refer to when multiple people are working toward one thing and how do you make that easier to do? How do you help people coordinate? How do you establish and maintain social trust? I kind of got down this rabbit hole just because of a lifelong search for meaning, which I think uh, just about everyone experiences in one form or another. You know, as a child, you live in your household, you follow rules, you learn, and then you get out into the adult world and things aren't so structured. So you go looking for what it is that you're supposed to be doing with yourself. What is good? What is worth doing? What constitutes a good life? And there are not a lot of external answers. And this got me into looking at social technologies and applying that model to the things that humans do in large groups, because it is through institutions that it may be possible to find meaning. In fact, meaning as we understand it or fail to understand it may have a lot to do with traditions, uh, organizations of people, shared modes of thoughts, it might be that we can't find something that will feel like meaning unless we are part of a large group of people who look at things in similar ways. And, you know, this is not necessarily a novel concept, but I like the notion of social technologies because it lets you look at the different things that we're already doing as groups, whether as uh, communities, nations, families, humanity as a whole, and say, is this getting us to where we need to be? Or when we look at all the things that have been going wrong worldwide over the past few years, not just the pandemic, but more the social unrest that has accompanied the pandemic, 
what has broken down that has led to higher levels of isolation, loneliness, frustration, uh, increased drug use, increased suicide, uh, greater incidences of uh, terrorism and possible buildup to war? What have we lost that previously held that back? And is there a way to fix these institutions so that less time is wasted in frustration and loneliness and fewer lives are wasted in uh, wars and conflict? So that was the part that got my attention. And I've been uh, wanting to dive into this with others so that we can expand out on this model and turn it into a way that we can evaluate the existing social technologies, see if there are ways to build new ones and see if there are ways to fix the ones that have broken. Yeah, that's that's fascinating and an, an admirable um, object of thought since if we do manage to uh, bring to fruition some sort of project like that with a new societal custom that stabilizes everything, well, that would be really valuable. Um, do you have any good examples for things like that that you've come across, um, either from your own thought or from resources that you've come across? Uh, there are quite a few. With social technologies, the model can apply at a number of different levels. So if you consider the custom of hospitality, if you come over to my house, I'll invite you in, offer you a drink. If you're there during a mealtime, I'll invite you to join us for a meal. That's a set of customs and behaviors in a certain situation that tells us all how to act, tells us all what to expect, and allows a more pleasant interaction among people, fewer sources of conflict. So that would be one example. Another example would actually be currency. Uh, currency exists because people all agree that a dollar or a ruble or whatever other unit of currency is worth a certain amount and that all of the units of currency are exchangeable for each other. Without the beliefs and expectations that go into that, it wouldn't function. But because people do share that belief, it makes coordination easier. It makes trade easier. So those are two examples right off the bat of uh, social technologies. They can also include everything from religions to nation states to dancing to holidays. Just about everything that groups of people do where there is a set of behaviors that follow from certain circumstances can be looked at as a social technology and evaluated with respect to the benefits it produces and the cost to individuals and whether those balance out in a way that is long-term beneficial. Yeah, these are great examples. I think now I'm coming to an understanding that something that I've heard before might also um, be considered a, a, a social technology, and that is the keeping of the royal family role or still having uh, a king or queen in England, because usually we look at them, people from other countries, and you say, what are they still doing? Why is there a rich, a rich family still in charge of things? They get all these honors and, and they do nothing, basically. You know, it's nothing but ceremony. And then at some point, I, I read an article that says, well, people don't realize that in Britain you have you don't have three branches of government, but you have four. You have you have the three that you have in, in America and in Israel and in other democracies that are usually recognized. And then the fourth one is symbolic. So it's the symbolic branch of government in, in Britain. And about it, it's said that it's something for the people to look up to and just to see this long tradition, just to understand they're part of a long-standing tradition that they have a sort of um, onus almost to, to keep going, to not mess things up so badly that the chain is, is broken. And that is something that I remember kind of caught my attention at the time, that it was an interesting way of looking at it because really looking at, at the institution of, of royalty in England is sort of bizarre from the outside and it gave it a, a new 
interpretation that I, I really liked and was fascinated by. So would that count as a, as a social technology as well? It definitely would. And it's an interesting example because social technologies like physical technologies, things made of metal or plastic, can have different levels. You can have a technology that does one thing, and you can also have a technology that does multiple things. And I think the example of the British royal family would be a social technology that fills a number of different functions, but all tied together in one mechanism, as it were. It, uh, As you say, it acts as a fourth branch of government in some cases. It provides a certain level of continuity. It's a touchstone for the British identity to differing extents for different people. And I imagine it's also a way to coordinate publicity around certain causes or certain priorities that maybe can't be approached through uh, the other more, well, not really more traditional, but more systematic modes of government. So yeah, that's a great example. Nice. And I'm interested in hearing if you already turned your attention to areas in society that you personally think that are ready to accept a new or be benefited by a new social technology that doesn't uh, exist as of now. Um, is there something that you've already noticed that could be made better? I like the way you ask that because if you're asking if there are those who would benefit, then the answer is definitely yes. If you ask if they're ready to accept it, I think that's going to uh, have a variety of answers across the board. The short answer is that I have not figured out what new technologies might be deployed to solve some of the issues that we've been seeing lately. I have been noticing a lot of problems in need of solution. As I was mentioning earlier, frustration, isolation, feelings of helplessness, uh, feelings of confusion, a lot of uh, societal roles, which you can look at as a form of social technology, have broken down in the sense of how widely they're accepted and how consistent the expectations are for those roles. At least traditionally, you look back and everyone knew what a father was. Everyone knew what a mother was. Everyone knew what the expectations were for those. And just because the last, say, 100 years have included a great deal of social and technological and political change, those roles have become less simple than they used to be. And along with that goes the reassurance that came from people being able to say, oh, that's what that role is. I may or may not fit into it. I may or may not be fulfilling it if I'm in that role, but I at least know what it is. Everyone agrees about what it is. Uh, with those two and many other examples, there's been a diffusion of consistency so that now there's a lot more freedom as far as what a given role might mean or imply, but a lot less coherence as far as what people are supposed to do, how people are supposed to feel. Pretty much everything people do now that so many of these roles and other technologies have weakened over time has a much higher cognitive and emotional overhead. And that, I think, is what's leading to a lot of the negatives that we're seeing on the global stage across the last three years or so. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it to uh, in a direction that really it's just today that I got to think about this because I saw on Twitter a tweet by uh, somebody about the fact that uh, couples raise their children uh, on their own, basically, as a couple, you know, with not a lot of support from, from family members or, or tribe members. And me being uh, an unschooler, or homeschooler, I don't really care about the, the label, but me and my wife are raising our daughter at home with us. And yeah, we do notice that there is a lack of social support around us. And it is probably more demanding and exhausting than it should be uh, than in the original context around raising children, which is having all these people to, to be allies. And I, it made me think about how our society has gone basically now full-on individualistic, right? So we're supposed to uh, self-fulfill 
and self-realize ourselves as individual. And I noticed that it's interesting because in my mind, I realized just today that maybe it's not that we should be uh, living in a collectivist society where we are just things, just pawns serving some sort of uh, entity that's, that's the sum of all the people that live in it, which I'm also averse to, you know, uh, China-like China system. Uh, but a system that would be focusing on relationships where people understand this is neither about me or the thing I'm, I'm patriotic about, let's say country, let's say uh, tribe. Like it's not my job to, to make this uh, tribe great and take pride in how the, the tribe is. And it's not about self-realization in the sense that I should prioritize it over other things. But what if we focused on realizing that in, in a very real way, our relationships is what should get the most attention, our personal relationships with people. It sounds to me like there could be a, a middle path there between collectivism and individualism that could help us all connect and form uh, a stronger network. So basically, I just came across this thought today and now I'm running it by you. I think that could be a very strong basis for a social technology that would help to heal a lot of the frustration and isolation. You're right, individualism has run rampant in a number of particularly Western societies over the last few years. And that's led to, you might even call that a competing social technology to the old ways of viewing family, friendships, membership in a community. It's been glorified that you should do what works for you, live your best life, don't let people hold you back. Things like that frequently show up as inspirational thoughts. But the downside of that, as you mentioned, is that can weaken the connections between you and others where before those connections would have been a priority. So I think we do have to look at what the social technology of individualism has done that has not necessarily been good for those it affected and how we can either generate new social technologies to reinforce the importance of bonds with others or look at what older social technologies there are that have fallen out of use that could be reinvigorated. Uh, we also homeschool, so I'm very familiar with uh, some of the challenges there and the added cognitive overhead that comes of doing something that those around you are not doing and don't necessarily understand. And it is a good example of a case where being able to still call on community support, family support, other sorts of support is very necessary to be able to do it in the best way possible. Yeah, absolutely. And it's super interesting for me to think how would we go about if we had now to design. So I'm putting us on the spot a little bit. I don't know how far we'll get with this, but what would be a foundation for a social technology that makes us all turn our attention to the interpersonal relationships and kind of puts our identity somewhere between the individual and the collective in a way that's that's maybe healthier is it is the beginning of this just spreading the meme developing uh, a corpus of statements on the issue or essays or ideas is is that usually the the way things start to roll for a new social technology from what i've seen thus far a lot of them develop organically they start out with things that one group just thinks of to do they start doing on a regular basis others see that the these people over here are doing these things they're having fun or they're living better, they're healthier, so it starts to spread in that way. In other cases, they are launched uh, deliberately by institutions, by governments, uh, by religions. So there are examples of both. Like a lot of things, it's sometimes difficult, or at least it seems not to go that well when people try to impose it from above. There's the risk of it looking artificial, like major brands trying to communicate on social media. Yeah. 
I think what you're saying would be a good set of first steps. Uh, something that comes to mind immediately is localism. One way to strengthen communities is to look at the fact that communities work better when people are physically in contact with each other. And that's definitely something that suffered during the course of the pandemic. So one social technology that might help to alleviate the problem we're talking about is to strengthen the importance of localism. And it would start with memes, with statements, with articles, but then it could go on to events, uh, say kind of like the in-person salons that Interintellect is running more and more of. There is a lot of awareness that in-person interaction strengthens communities more so than remote or online interaction. So a series of events or even just the meta strategy of getting people to prioritize in-person events would be a good way to strengthen communities and families. Yeah, so first of all, I think we should do it. Uh, well, I guess some people are doing it, but it would be very interesting for me to think and further develop this notion uh, that I just they <laughs> started uh, growing. Yeah, what are some examples from history about social technology? I know from the little that we've talked about this before, a uh, very short exchange, there are examples of technologies that have gotten lost, possibly. That was the other thing that really grabbed my imagination with the concept of social technology. We're aware of physical technologies that have been lost, say the formula for the cement that the Romans used to build the Colosseum or for what the uh, ancient Chinese used to build the Great Wall, things that last a lot longer than the buildings that we build now. I've heard that there are others uh, more recent but the notion that there might be intricate social technologies that were developed in history that had been lost because all the people that participated in them uh, were driven apart by political changes, natural disasters, things of that nature, is fascinating. In a way, most of the coordination you see these days, except what comes from existing institutions, almost seems to be a regression to the stone age of social technologies. The whole notion of do what feels good, uh, don't worry about anyone trying to tell you what's right or wrong, there's no need to have loyalty to your country, your town, your community. With all the division that you've seen happen during the advancement of postmodernism, we are almost back to stone tools, metaphorically speaking. In terms of specific technologies that have been lost, I have not yet found one where I can say this is a custom that we've forgotten how to enact, but you can see in history things that were done where we look at them and we say, how did they even do that? The uh, Egyptian pyramids come to mind. There's been a lot of talk. How in the world did a bunch of people with no, no physical technology stronger than ropes and logs build something of that scale out of blocks that large? And the answer is they must have had extremely intricate ways of coordinating labor and the movement of resources to enable that to happen using fairly simple physical machines. So while I'm not sure of examples of specific technologies that have been lost, you can see gaps where a technology was, and you can start to infer things about what those social technologies might have looked like and what complexity they might have had. Yeah, in the case of the pyramids, that's really interesting because today, of course, it wouldn't happen if you needed to count on individuals uh, pulling the weight of the of the stones and of the of the tools over to the side, right? Because it's not what they, that that feels right to anyone today to do that. So the underlying social technology would be something that would actually spark um, inspiration in all these people to actually lend a hand and do that. Because we know today that um, in, in Jewish writings, ancient Jewish writings, it's said that uh, slaves built the pyramids. But I know that from some archaeological findings, we know today that actually workers were treated fairly well. Um, so even if they were slaves, they weren't lashed at and things like that. If they broke their 
legs, they would actually receive treatment because they were at least somewhat skilled. They did not want to just lose them. And it's interesting, it connects it to, uh, to a personal story of mine, which I connect with the pyramids. So after my, my mom died, my dad uh, was about 50 and, of course, was just dealt the hardest blow he had been dealt in his life. And he didn't really know what to do with himself. So across from his home, uh, there's another hill. So there's a ravine you go down to and then another hill. And there are many, many rocks on that hill because I live in a very rocky area. And he just started for the next two years or so, uh, built his own pyramids alone. Basically, he just started stacking rocks and making them into sort of um, almost like raised boardwalks and little domes. And by the end of two or three years that he did that, you know, he totally transformed the landscape. And you could look at it and be quite impressed with all that he achieved with this energy that he had, that he didn't know where to channel. And it always was, for me, a solution to the problem of, like, how the hell did they build the pyramids? Because now I understood that if you have a whole nation of people who truly believe that their ruler is literally a god, when this god dies, they, uh, they just go for it. And they do it and they, and they find the way. And so it's, it must be a period of extra motivation and also extra progress in when it comes to technology stuff, right? Because that's, that's exactly it. It's not that they just have more muscle, uh, more willingness to carry stuff, but they're also thinking more and they're really, really motivated to make this thing work. And it just creates this period of, uh, building a pyramid, a sort of golden age of sorts, where they come up with new technology. And at the base of that is probably the social technology of treating the pharaoh as a god. So that's that's just to address the pyramids and uh, a thought I had about the pyramids before. That's a very good point. Uh, I was aware as well, both of the tradition that it was built by slaves being whipped at every step and the more recent revelation that it was not volunteer labor in the sense that we normally think of it, but it was something that slaves and citizens alike would give of their time to, I think, uh, during the period where outside of planting and harvesting. That's the part that intrigues me from the perspective of social technology. There's an incredible coordination cost involved with getting a large number of people to donate that much time and effort Maybe not happily, but at least in a harmonious enough way that you get really large blocks on top of each other with a minimum of damage or uh, injury. That's incredible. We can't do that now. Uh, there are those who have said we may or may not be able to get someone to the moon again for a while. We may have lost the social technology that allowed a project on that scale to take place. So what was it the Egyptians had that coordinated all that time and effort from all those people? in a way that worked. That's the part that was lost. And that is a very fertile field for thinking about ways to address our current problems. It's a matter of uh, coordination costs and also a matter of social trust. All those people set aside everything they were doing. They presumably left their homes undefended and they came to this place where the pyramids were being built trusting that they would be protected and fed, that they would receive care if they uh, were injured on the job. That Engendering that level of trust is the challenge of an intricate social technology. And that is the part that I would like to understand better so that we can look at how to solve problems at a larger scale, not with physical solutions, not with devices, such as we've been prone to do lately, but with new ways of trusting each other and new ways of making the easier behavior, the more beneficial behavior. Yeah, that's really interesting. Maybe a, first, uh, a, maybe a first step would be to look at what people uh, yearn for at, at a certain age, because we are basically witnessing the crumbling of a concept that worked for about 2,000 years or more. Uh, so in the time of the Romans, soldiers would be recruited serve about 30 years in the military and when they retire they would go to their uh, estate right on the frontier wherever the romans got to 
that would be the the social contract and this is basically the, the beginning of the whole notion of having a career for 40 something years and retiring at 67 you know on your plot of land or whatever and this is exactly what is crumbling today with uh and you can see it with things like the great resignation that's going on today people are not really going for it and i think it's our job to look at what they do want why why is it not working so the quick fix at the beginning and the knee-jerk reaction i think of, of corporations was to say oh people are just a lot more spoiled basically people are you know millennials are spoiled brats so give them pool tables give them um i don't know whatever it is that google put in their offices to keep the people in there working basically just indulge them. But I think it's more systemic than that. And of course, not every company is Google. So a lot of companies can't afford to do that. And we need to figure out what it is that now a lot of people want that keeps them from actually following through with this uh, scheme of working for 40 years until their retirement. And I don't know what what are your thoughts on this? Are there any opinions out there on what what it is that people want? That's a great example because it brings up another benefit of working social technologies. They give people a way to recontextualize the cost of a set of behaviors from a negative to a positive. Uh, on a simple level, think about CrossFit. In CrossFit, they say it's not a workout unless you throw up. It's supposed to hurt. People get injured all the time. But then they talk amongst each other and to anyone who will listen about how hard their workout was, and they feel great about it. They turn that pain into a payoff. What we're looking at in the context of your example is the breakdown of a social technology that we'll call the nine to five. And you're right, it's been around a really long time. And the way that technology functions in brief is... You get up every morning, you go to your work, you don't necessarily enjoy it, but everyone else is doing work a certain amount of time each day, most days of the week. Typically, you get one or two days off each week, and you get a steady paycheck, hopefully. These are the expectations that come with that social technology, and part of it is it sucks, but it sucks for everyone, and we have all kinds of memes and jokes about that. And those memes and jokes are part of the technology that take the pain away. And that has worked really well. Everyone hated it. Everyone did it. Everyone did it until they retired. And retire the benefits of retirement are even part of this social technology and that a lot of people hate it. A lot of people find it boring. A great many people die a couple of years after they retire. But you're supposed to look forward to retirement. That's your reward for a lifetime of work. All of this is part of the myth that makes up the social technology that we'll refer to as nine to five here. And that, as you pointed out, has broken down in the last few years. All of a sudden, people who previously would have made their peace with it because everyone around them was doing it and there wasn't really an alternative, uh, between the organic growth of remote work and the sudden disruption of the pandemic, all of a sudden, huge numbers of people are saying, wait a minute, this isn't the only way and it didn't really work that well. Why should I do this at all? The shared belief that made that technology function has broken down and there's not been anything to replace it yet. So I think that is why we're seeing what we're seeing. In terms of how to fix it, I think the things you mentioned that Google and other companies are doing, they're kind of taking shots in the dark. What can we do to fix this technology? If the goal is to get people back to work with the current set of expectations, you'd really have to take a close look at what people actually want versus what they say they want. People say they want a ping pong table in the atrium. They say they want to work remote all the time. Some people don't actually. Some people say they want to work in the office some of the time. Uh, they say they want uh, an espresso machine in the break room, you know, free lattes, all these things. But you also have to dig into in the fact that in the workplaces where people have been given all those things, they don't necessarily stick around. I think there is some growing understanding that what most people want, aside from the survival necessity of a steady paycheck, is to be respected at work and to have a sense of contributing 
to a shared goal. You know, even if it's just the bottom line of a large corporation, it's not really about that so much as working with those around you. If you're in, say, accounts receivable, that's not really a the goals of accounts receivable are may not be your personal goals, but the fact that you're working with the rest of your team to do these things that need to be done. And by doing those things, you've contributed to the good of the team. I feel like that is one of the missing things that has led to the breakdown of the old social technology. And if we found a way to emphasize that in a more consistent manner, that might help to stem the tide of the great resignation. And that brings us back around to meaning. That's what gives meaning to work. The fact that you're doing hopefully something you don't hate, but something that contributes to the good of the group. That's what produces the feeling that we refer to as meaning. So that's yeah. my thoughts so far. Mm-hmm. No, that's interesting. I was myself going to tie it back to the whole uh, meaning discussion. I will say I'm not sure that the, that the great resignation is something that needs to be fixed per se. Maybe it's about time that we actually automatize everything that we can automatize. Uh, which is probably uh, a lot more than than has been done because it's still been convenient to just keep with tradition. I'm not sure, also honestly, that that people don't care what what the goal of their company or what they're producing. I feel like, and now I'm going to more explicitly tie it back to the meaning discussion. I feel like um, the boomer generation and and previous generations have been keeping with tradition. The technological advancement of the 20th and 21st centuries was so great that basically my generation, um, so I don't know, Gen X, millennials, they grew up in a, in a changing world. And now if it's, if it's even younger people, it's a changed world. And it's almost like you grow up into a world that you were totally not prepared for with the education almost being useless, what you've been told about this world doesn't seem to to hold any water. And we have to figure it out. I think that with technology today, there is a a growing understanding that we are more so than ever before able to connect with other people online and really rethink society on a larger scale than ever before just for the reason that, you know, I'm in Israel and you're in Georgia and we can talk about it and agree on something and go do it today, you know, with the help of a DAO, we start something like that. So it's definitely a period for, for really a lot of society to shift toward new things. And I'm not sure that the great resignation is something that's going to get fixed. Maybe we're just going to work less that's it's it's a possibility because more and more of us are recognizing i think that there is abundance that we do live in a society of abundance uh that maybe there is no reason to compete so much because competition is is such a is such a an ancient notion right you want to do well and part of doing well is is doing better than someone else if i were to guess i would say that maybe will wake up to a world where more people agree to have less, but uh, because they recognize they have enough. I don't know, it's very optimistic, but uh, I think and I hope that's where it's going. I think that is a possible future. Uh, For many years, particularly here in America, where competition is among the highest social goods, that's been seen as idealistic, but I suspect it is a goal for which the social technology has not yet been developed. Because it would be a very valuable thing for people to realize what is enough. Uh, In the Western world, we waste a lot from people who have enough and then want more and find that that more doesn't fulfill them. So they waste a lot of the additional resources they've collected, then they go after still more than that. Half the, well, most of the American economy is based on that exact pattern of consumption. There must be a better way. The question is, how do you address the gaps that are leading to that behavior? It's not hard to find examples where that behavior does not fulfill whatever need led to it because people keep doing it. If it offered fulfillment, people would do a certain amount of it and then turn to something else. So you have to ask, 
what is it that leads to overconsumption and how else can we address it? And that is starting there. You could look at a way to develop a social technology that would make it acceptable to know when enough is enough. That would be a fascinating rabbit hole to go down and one that might have a huge payoff for really the entire world because Western consumerism comes at the expense of other areas. Absolutely. It it begs a solution. Um, And this is what I personally work on in my life, because to me, the moment I realize that I live in a society of abundance and that I'm unlikely to starve, even if I fail to make enough money, uh, what is socially accepted as, as making enough money, but I recognize I won't go hungry. I recognize that my life as a middle-class person in Israel, which is, Tel Aviv was just confirmed to be the most expensive city in the world. So Israel is a really expensive country, but being middle-class here, I live a much better life than the King of France lived 500 years ago, you know? This is something to to consider for all of us. The moment that I realize that it's really not any material thing that keeps, that stands between me and lasting happiness or well-being that that was a a watershed moment and i think that more and more people realize that because more and more people are able to with relatively uh in a a relatively short period of time get a high paying job so obviously you and i are twitter dwellers and we see that twitter is about 80 percent uh, software engineers looking to to somehow save their soul, and this is true. People today, for relatively easily, can get a, a high paying job, but then they realize that it's much much harder to somehow find a meaning that they want to to have in their life and in what they do. Um, so this is my personal project of understanding what is enough. That's why I do dialectic. I think there is an answer to that. That is a great project. I myself am uh, deeply enmeshed in this culture of competitive action where if you're just sitting still, if you're doing well enough and you're not reaching for more, you somehow feel like you're not doing what you should be doing. I felt that personally and spent a lot of time spinning my wheels. It's like, well, this is enough. I have a home. I have plenty of food for my family, you know, two cars, two dogs. And yet I felt like I was uh, missing the mark somehow by not striving for more, constantly looking for. And you'll see this again all over Twitter, you know, people trying to uh, generate side hustles and things like that. And there's a whole industry that will uh, grab people like that and pull them in, you know, do this and you can establish passive income, you know, buy the latest uh, meme coin, things of that nature. And that is to say that it is a, competing social technology that has a very powerful grip on Western society. And you can see why it arose and why it was promoted by, say, some of the governments that uh, led to society as we know it. If people are constantly reaching for more, constantly trying to do more, constantly striving, they're innovating, they're producing more, they're producing a lot harder than if they were well-versed in the alternative social technology of contentment. Content people are no good to an economy. They buy hardly anything. They don't produce nearly as much as those who are terminally unsatisfied. Yeah, I love it. Um, Daniel Vassallo, who's been on this podcast, his Twitter bio is, I'm bad for the economy. So he quit his um, half a million year job at Amazon to do his stuff, what he likes to do. And um, I, I like his bio, I'm bad for the economy. That's exactly right. I mean, in that regard, it's it's bad for the economy, but I think there is a sort of awakening, and that's exactly where we are. I think there is an awakening, but it's still early time in the awakening. It's not we're not yet fully conscious and not yet fully aware of what the solution is. We're right at the stage where there is uh, discontent with the way things are, but we haven't turned the corner and realize that the solution to this is to be content with less and focus on relationships and that it's possible. That's that's the major thing that I think is happening. More and more people 
and it's still a small group at this point, but more and more people realize it's possible. In an ancient context, you know, you could think about a utopia, about a world government, something like that, but you would never think it to be possible. It's just like people are speaking too many different languages, there are too many different cultures, some of them are belligerent by nature and they're proud of, you know, this is what makes their culture tick. Uh, so it, it's really hard to, to even think about it, but today with the connectivity that's achieved with the internet, I think more and more people are starting to consciously kind of put out the idea that, you know, it could be possible for us to connect in also, also in DAOs and in organizations that are not uh, government organizations are not, they don't uh, wave some sort of, of banner and they don't stay within a physical, uh, within physical borders. I think that's where we are. If I had to put the finger on where we are in this process, we are definitely not, the, the old ways are not coming back. Uh, but going forward, it's interesting what's going to happen. Now, I'm not naive enough to say that it's all going to be great because usually uh, revolutions end up with some sort of a dictator taking, taking control, um, just exploiting the situation and, and taking control over the whole thing. But maybe this is more evolution than revolution. So it gives a uh, reason for optimism. True. And while you can't really expect everything will be great, you can look to making things better. There are specific problems that are observed in the world today. And if you mitigate those problems to whatever extent without too many unintended consequences, then you've improved the world that you're in. It's interesting on the topic of a replacement social technology that would allow people to continue in abundance but also learn a mode of contentment. The thing that usually kicks that off during history has been when the abundance goes away. All of a sudden, there's not enough for people to constantly consume more and more and more. And where before everyone funneled greater respect to those who consumed more and sought after more, in situations of not having enough, they direct their respect to those who know how to conserve, who know how to save, who know how to make responsible use of resources. The problem for us is that that doesn't happen by itself unless something catastrophic happens that does away with the abundance and it also doesn't happen in isolation. It tends to be associated with wars, with famine, with uh, increased crime. And I wonder if the problem there is that there's a common language in every human society to describe physical needs, to describe hunger, to describe cold, to describe fear of harm. We don't have as coherent a language to describe our, and perhaps spiritual needs, perhaps need for meaning. Yet there's not even the language to describe what it is I'm trying to describe. There are things we lack in the modern world, and we can see the effect of this with the Great Resignation, with people turning away from work as we understood it 10 years ago. But we don't have a way to say, this is what people are missing. This is what that gap consists of, and this is how to fill it. If we had a way to describe that, it might be easier to get people on board for moderated consumption, even in the midst of abundance. If we knew what gap it was people were addressing when they would go out and buy a lake house or buy a Winnebago or something like that, buying stuff or eating twice the amount they need to eat. If we knew what gap they were trying to fill through those behaviors, then we could say, here's a way to reframe it so that you're filling that gap through moderation, through conservation, through more responsible use of resources and greater generosity to those who don't have them. It would be ideal, and perhaps this is naive of me, if we could help people reframe how they perceive these things so that those who share are held up above those who just constantly strive for themselves. Yeah, that would be great. I mean, to me, when you ask about what makes the person uh, consume more and be focused on the material things, to me, from what I've seen in life, it's, it's about hedonism, which is basically 
the kind of um, mode of being that we're born with that keeps us alive because that's that's survival uh you just you do more of what is pleasurable you stay away from what is painful and you get to see another day right and that's that's the that's the genius of evolution that at least in at least in humans um reproducing is is pleasurable so that's where you see that what is pleasurable is not necessarily what is good for for a good life so i'm not i'm not one of these uh people who would say we don't need any more children children ruin the planet no on on the contrary i think we need more smart young minds to work on the problems but having children or reproducing is already not not exactly a thing that helps you as an individual keep alive okay in fact animals go to great lengths males of certain animals including humans would risk their lives in order to have the pleasure of having the status and the actual um pleasure from from having sex so a lot of people never update this program of chasing what feels good hedonism uh when in fact when we are teenagers let's say and we develop the capacity for reason we should follow through with that and start reasoning about the world and realize that what we want to do is live well and if we think for long enough about living well and thinking about living well in the context of society we get a concept like justice which is very close to my heart if you think enough about the concept of justice you realize that justice is not um not scamming people it's not not murder uh, not killing people um uh, it's not any specific action it's a very high level principle of benefit others benefit not only not only do you have to not harm them but you have to benefit them if you tie all this back together to living well and this is what you grow up to want because that's it's the only thing that makes sense for you to want as as a person is to do well to be mentally healthy then you just naturally start really internalizing these things and start creating connections that are beneficial and this is good for you this is good for your mental health so it's selfish um right it's enlightened self interest uh this is what i'm trying to do and um is it naive to say that it's going to happen within 10 years yes but maybe if the trend continues to be such that more and more people give up on the old ideas of the 95 social technology and they look around them and they realize they have quite a lot of free time on their hands hopefully there will be a massive disillusionment with with the notion of of hedonism hopefully again i'm not i'm not saying that that this is the case but that could be where the tides will will change that is interesting and i'm curious on the subject of hedonism do you see that for those who practice it most intensely as a goal state or a failure mode we do see a lot of people chasing pleasures but i wonder to what extent that is goal directed behavior as opposed to acting almost compulsively uh people don't seem to enjoy their search for pleasures all that much you can read about this endlessly on social media uh in a way they enjoy the anticipation of it more than the action of it so i'm wondering if it if it takes the form of a philosophy or just a way of describing people a sort of base level of activity yeah. this is what a human system does when it does not have a clear path from its current state to its goal state uh, yeah exactly so so let's refer to hedonism um to the in ancient athens there were people who bought together a garden outside of athens and they were hedonists right epicureans uh, but their right. hedonism was trying to achieve a state where you don't have anything painful happen to you so they thought if if you're not in pain you live the good life so it's kind of reverse hedonism it's they they sought for, uh, after the the lack of pain um but hedonism as i say it is chasing pleasures and just as you said in uh, towards the end of what you were saying this is just the basic program we come with to um to deal with reality 
as as organisms. We just pleasure is associated with the things that will get you to live another day. So we don't have to explicitly think about it, but it's still a concept. There is still a concept in us. Concepts, whether we want them, we could not recognize them at all. So concepts are abstractions of patterns. If we pay attention, we see some sort of pattern repeating. It could be pattern in space. It could be a pattern uh, through time, but we give it a name. We name it and it's kind of categorized in our mind as something that we can think about, an object of thought that can then be applied in our uh, behavior. And people do kind of conceive of the good somewhat, but it's a high level concept. So they usually don't develop it if they don't do dialectic. And then what happens is that pleasure is good. That's the confusing part. Pleasure is good. It, it's by definition good. It's like a harmony of the flesh or something like that. It, it's felt good and they want good things. So that's what they do over and over again, uh, not noticing that the, we have the capacity of, we have the capability of thinking about a more sustainable pattern, which is well-being, which is being mentally healthy. And that calls for different actions to be taken, to actually begin. And as you know, any explicit, any action you do is at the beginning has to be kind of explicit and, and artificial where you have to tell yourself, I'm going to move my hand from here. You're learning a new technique, but everything becomes automatic once it's, it's a habit. So people are born with the habit of chasing pleasures and they just never get rid of that program. Uh, when we are perfectly capable of, of switching a disc and starting to focus on a different concept of well-being. That makes a lot of sense. Let me propose this in the context of our current discussion. It may be that something akin to social technology is necessary for people to take that step beyond the default programming. When I was introduced to music appreciation as a class that one could go and take, at first I was puzzled. Why do I need a class in music appreciation? I can turn on the radio and appreciate music right now. And it was explained to me with some patience that <laughs> with more sophisticated forms of music, uh, what we refer to as classical music, for example, you have to learn what it is you're listening for and all the different sorts of ways that it can be good or that it can be adequate or that it can be bad. Until you learn those things, you can't really experience it to the fullest. So I wonder if it's not, if it doesn't need to be part of the strategy that there needs to be a social technology or a set of them to help people even see the good, to be able to apply words to it, a language to describe it, and mostly, most of all, a way to understand when you've achieved it. Because as you were saying, the, uh, the sensory, the pleasure-driven life is it is basic programming. It's the default. When you don't know what else to do with yourself, go eat something. You'll feel better. You know, sleep if you're tired, chase after uh, pleasures of the flesh. But it does sound like, and this technology has probably been lost multiple times over history. People forget how to identify the good. So it becomes all the more difficult to act towards the good. Yeah, it's 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 interesting to see what I think is happening now that are a lot a lot more people are receptive um, when it comes to new ideas. People are willing to entertain new ideas, and my hope is that I'll be able to somehow come in contact with them and invite them to do dialectic uh, until it becomes this you know massive grassroots movement. Hopefully. Um, it's interesting. Is there is there could there be a class of um, well-being appreciation? There could be in the future when there's enough people, when there are enough people who um, know what it takes because it takes some studying. Uh, but after an initial uh, learning curve that is very steep because it, dialectic makes us think in in a way that we're not used to. Um, because we haven't been educated in a way that, that really encourages that. But after a steep learning curve, we can just get to a point where we are a lot better at living well. Um, and when enough people are doing that, they could uh, 
possibly start a class like that when they teach people what what it takes. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really interesting thought. I like it. So to start down the path of the particulars as a way to understand this better, I was interested in the steep learning curve because you're absolutely right. Teaching dialectic, even teaching people to learn from it, is not something that's going to happen just like that. And it's a very worthy goal to figure out a way to reframe that for the modern era to get people on board for it. But how do you overcome that learning curve? There doesn't need to be an immediate payoff to compete with, say, a bar of chocolate or a can of beer. But are there intermediate incentives that can be built into a new social technology around dialectic to help sustain people until they can learn the appreciation of it? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so for people who do dialectic with me, I tell them it's it's a long uh, game. It's it's not it's not long as in decades long, but it will take you know at least a few weeks to start getting some concepts in place. But the the whole web of concepts becomes stronger as, and as more and more concepts are there because they help uh, prop up other concepts near them. So it all becomes more stable, more robust. And that takes, you know, a few weeks, ideally, probably a year or so, but it's not a lifelong thing. But I do tell people it's a long game. And that's that's the challenge is to find people who are motivated. Some people, of course, we know, do not want to learn anything. There's nothing we can do about it either. Another thing we have to um, keep in mind is that I'm doing dialectic with the exceptional people who are still curious enough and motivated enough to turn their life around in some very fundamental way, i.e. move from hedonism towards um, looking at well-being. But really what needs to happen is that dialectic is taught to children or done with children uh, who are not going to find it as hard. Probably because dialectic is fun. All I'm saying, it sounds like this very heavy thing. It, it's it's totally it's fun. I mean, you solve puzzles. You go through your head and you find inconsistencies and you make them disappear. That's fun. It's immensely gratifying to have a, a model of the world that's way more beautiful, elegant, robust, and unlikely to uh, to collapse with something. Uh, with some outside circumstance changing. It almost resembles learning to play an instrument more than it resembles certain other types of learning. If you sit down to learn the guitar, you're going to sound like complete crap for months. And then all of a sudden you'll get to the point where you're playing a tune and a different part of your brain says, hey, that sounds pretty good. It seems like there would be a period like that where you're learning the basic skills, learning to apply them, And then you have that first moment where you've reached an epiphany and suddenly things are more clear and more elegant. Another analogy would be the runner's high. I can tell you from experience, you probably know you have to run a long time before your body learns to experience the runner's high. But yeah, once you can get to that point, then it becomes self-reinforcing and you would not want to do things any other way. You wouldn't want to return to confused thought patterns and lack of consistent valuation once you've learned to see things in that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. A hundred percent. So we've gone over an hour with this and I just want to ask you if you have any other thoughts on the matter at hand. I don't think we left any loose ends within the branches that we explored. So I think that's a good place to be on a podcast. There's all sorts of different dimensions and elements to this but they probably fill a book yeah yeah i'm sure that book is being written as we speak somewhere (laughs) i hope so i hope so um yeah for sure this is a very open-ended topic and you know we were just trying to guess our place at a kind of imaginary uh track that civilization is on right now so i like it it's it's very um it's very up in the air very uh, a lot of guesswork that we've been doing, but I really wish this would uh, kickstart a discussion on the next social technology, technology, the next big thing that could propel us forward as a civilization. And eventually, of course, 
help us all as individuals feel well-being and enjoy. So, yeah, Dave, thank you very much for, for coming on and exposing me to this fascinating uh, concept and topics that you brought up today. And one last thing before we go, Dave, uh, where could people follow you to hear your thoughts and hear about what you do? I'm most active on Twitter. You can find me at Bay, G-U-N-A-L-P underscore B-E-Y underscore is my Twitter handle. So feel free to reach out. Nice. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. Yes. Looking forward to more conversations in the future.